Welcome to Days of Roar, the Detroit Tiger podcast brought to you by the Detroit Free Press. My name is Mark Gorash. I am here with my podcast partner, Evan Petzold. We are rapidly closing in on Tucker spring training. I can kind of start feeling excited thinking about baseball. It was 50 degrees and sunny outside today, Alves, and it's hard not to think a little bit about spring training. How about you? Yeah, definitely counting down the days at this point. It's been a busy week from, you know, jumping on LB Network Radio to talk with Mike Farron to, you know, going to the Cold Keep press conference and getting that taken care of to working on some projects that I'm working on leading up to spring training. Super busy with that. It's also kind of keeping in the back of my mind, hey, look, I got to pack to get down there. I got to kind of ready myself to get out of town for a while and leave. It's a long time down there in Lakeland. And then on top of all that, Savannah and I started a new TV show tonight. So watching the show called 24. I'm sure people have heard about it. It came out um, a long time ago, but we're going back and we're watching it for the first time. We've jumped through a million different TV shows, especially the longer ones we really like and we get attached to the character and stuff like that. So it's been an eventful week, but here we are now ready to record. Evan Petzl, tell them what TV show you watched before 24. All right. I actually have a couple because I don't want people just to like judge me based off of this one show, but I did watch Reba, the TV series. Savannah's a huge fan of Reba, and so she convinced me to watch it, and I got attached to the characters. But we've watched other shows too, Brothers and Sisters. We also watched A Million Little Things. We watched This Is Us as well. So now we're on 24. Well, let's just say that who doesn't love Reba? There we go. Come on, people. There we Re- go. Oh, you can. Reba is awesome. And yeah, I mean, look, man, is- I, wasn't, I wasn't the biggest Reba fan. Like, I wasn't listening to her music. I wasn't listening to her music and all that kind of stuff. Obviously, well aware of Reba. So much respect for her greatness. But at the same time, I wasn't expecting to, at 25 years old, click Reba and watch it on TV and watch all of the seasons. There's six of them. There's like 130 episodes. And I ended up watching them all the way through and loved every minute of it. I think I think it's a beautiful thing that Savannah Petzl is exposing you to the icons of, of American country music. She feeds, me, hey, she feeds me well, too. She feeds me well, too. She takes good care of you. Thank yes, God. she does. Some, somebody needs to. Right. All right. So you spent some time downtown this week. You got to see some of your people. You got to participate in the Cold Keith News Conference. Our boy Rodelio Castillo even got to ask a question, which I know was exciting for him. But at the same time, he got a chance probably to talk to Hedge and to some other people. But let's get into the big two. Question number one, A.J. Hedge went on Sherman and Heyman in New York, New York Post's podcast. I love one of those guys, and it's not John Heyman. And they ask him all kinds of questions, but he did discuss third base. So why don't you share with us what he had to say about, at least initially, what he thinks, you know, third base is going to be for the Tigers this year and how he plans to kind of meet out the playing time. Yeah, I'm really happy that this kind of came out because there's been a lot of questions about it. Scott Harris made it very clear, and we've known this for a long time, that Cole Keith is going to be playing second base for the Detroit Tigers in 2024. And that leads to the question of, okay, who's going to be at third base? And the question has come up over and over again. And the way the Tigers have talked about it, it's been, hey, look, like they're not going after Matt Chapman. They're not locking themselves into a long-term deal. They want to give Jace Young the opportunity to come up and make an impact towards the end of 2020, 2024. And maybe, you know what, Jace Young can be the everyday guy moving forward at third base. But still, fans are asking the questions. They want to know. They want to hear from somebody on the record. 
you know, with clarity. I understand that. So AJ Hinchman's and uh, John Heyman and Joel Sherman's podcast with the New York Post. He talked about a ton of different topics, but the one that jumped out to me was obviously third base. He said the Tigers are planning for optionality at third base in the 2024 season, which means, as we've said on this podcast from the beginning of the offseason, Matt Chapman is not signing with the Tigers. Hinge named three players, Matt Veerling, Andy Abanez, and Zach McKinstry. He did not name Justin Henry Malloy, who has worked who has not worked out at third base this offseason because his future has been determined. It's in the outfield. He also did not name Nick Maton or Ryan Kreidler. I bet you Kreidler starts in AAA and is probably the first call if the Tigers need a shortstop for any period of time. Cole Keeb, like we said, he's playing second base. So yeah, AJ Hinch pretty much came right out and said it's going to be Matt Veerling, Andy Abanez, and Zach McKinstry, which essentially confirms which, you know, what Scott Harris has been saying all offseason, right? Like the Tigers aren't going to block Jace Young. But it's going to be those three guys. I don't think this is anything we haven't been saying since November. Exactly. There's nothing new here. What I what I will say to you is I've been giving the lineup a few, you know, deeper thoughts recently and wouldn't shock me if when certain left-handers are throwing, Andy Abanez is going to get some playing time, most likely at third base. And it wouldn't shock me, depending on how he's hitting against left-handers, if Matt Veerling plays right field on those days and Kyrie, Kyrie Bonds Carpenter is grabbing a little bench action for an at bat or two until the fifth or sixth inning when relievers start entering the game and things start changing. What, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, possibly. I mean, A.J. Hinch talked about Andy Abanez and Zach McKinstry forming this natural platoon role with Abanez, who's a right-handed hitter, you know, playing against left-handed pitchers, and McKinstry, a left-handed hitter, playing against right-handed pitchers. I'm a little concerned about McKinstry in that sense, because remember, this guy hit 301 with an 865 OPS in May, and then in the other five months of the season, he hit 217 with a 607 OPS. That's no good at all. I'm a little bit worried that, you know, the five months are more reflective of who Zach McKinstry actually is. But I'm not as concerned about Andy Abanez, Mark. I think that's a great point. I think this is a guy who could be an impact player for the Tigers this season. Kind of low-key was was really good for the Tigers. I mean, again, he had that really bad start. And then in his final 87 games, he hit 294 with 10 home runs. That started on May 30th for the rest of the year. He also hit 295 with a 939 OPS against left-handed pitchers during that stretch. So this is a guy who can hit lefties. He's proven it. He's shown that he can do it over a long period of time. I think Andy Abinas could play a really big role. I'm not sold on Zach McKinstry yet. I'm just not. I think I'm there with you. I think Zach gives some level of comfort to Hinch because he does a lot of things that Hinch really likes. He plays really, really pretty stellar defense almost anywhere he plays, including passable shortstop, outstanding base runner. Doesn't make too many mistakes. Does he hit? Yeah, not a lot. And I think people will remember, was not a fan. I was not a fan of this acquisition last year. I had to I had to apologize to him in the month of May. And maybe I apologized too quickly. But you know, he's an effective utility player, very much in the it's kind of mold that Hinch really likes for his utility players to be. So, you know, the fact that he's likely gonna be on the team is not a shock. Do I think he's a lock to be active all year? Maybe not. See, you know, Kreidler's going to get some looks and we'll see what else is kind of going on, you know, with other players that'll shuffle back and forth from Toledo. 
but you know, we're going to, we'll, we'll see what's up. But Mark, that's, that's where I hesitate though. That's where I hesitate completely. When you look at Andy Abanez, is he really a true everyday player? I think the Tigers did a really good job of using him last year and it worked out really well in their favor down the stretch. Isn't Matt Veerling really like an everyday player on a championship or a playoff caliber team like to play every single day day in and day out I don't think he showed enough power to really be that guy yet he couldn't be that guy for the Phillies that's why he got dealt to the Tigers right Tigers thought they could get a little bit more out of the power they haven't been able to do it yet is Zach McKinstry an everyday guy not so sure about that so again this is a situation where the Tigers are going to be mixing and matching you know especially with these three different guys and I think that's going to be the big question right like is Jace Young really going to be able to come up at some point and fortify a spot as an everyday player at third base, or does the mix and match game continue? There are concerns with the mix and match game. Like it's not, it's not as nice as being able to stick an Alex Bregman, for example, as the Houston Astros are able to do at third base and, and have that just plug and play every day. It's not the same mixing and matching. So I don't know. We'll see how it works out. Again, if there's anyone that can do it, it's AJ Hinge. We have no doubt about that. But again, that's ultimately the personnel that he's being given. Yeah, like I said, I, th- I think we're pretty spot on. And, you know, AJ's not above tinkering. So, well, those are kind of minor things. And we'll have to wait and see exactly how those things work out. Let's move on to question two of the big two. We heard from Jim Leland this week about what hat or lack of logo he might want to wear in his Hall of Fame induction this year. He basically said he's not going to have a team logo on his plaque. And the question is, did he make the right decision? And how should Tiger fans feel about it? Share with me your thoughts. Yeah, Jim Leland hinted at this back at the winter meetings when he found out that he was going to be going to the Hall of Fame. He kind of had mentioned, hey, look, I'm going to talk to the Hall about this. And I don't really think I want a a logo. I don't know what I'm I don't know what logo I go with. Like, I, I don't want to disrespect anybody. And he came out and said the same thing just recently making his decision official. I'm going to read the quote here. It's, quote, I will always appreciate the teams that gave me the opportunity to be their major league manager. We had some great moments with every one of those ball clubs, and I'm proud that they all will be mentioned on my Hall of Fame plaque. I want to make sure I show each of those teams respect, and this does that, end quote. And I think that's the perfect decision. And also, too, I think Jim Leland has earned the right to make whatever decision he wants to make. I think he has earned that being a Hall of Fame manager, right? Obviously, the way that this whole process works is the Hall of Fame's researchers and leaders, they talk to the inductees. They basically explain what their preference would be for the plaque. But ultimately, the final decision is with the Hall of Fame, not with the players or with the managers that are getting in. Still, obviously, the inductees, they get a ton of input. And most of the time, the Hall respects the wishes of the inductees. But it goes through the Hall of Fame. The Hall of Fame ultimately makes the decision. I think Jim Leland has earned the right to do whatever he wants. I love this move. I think it's super classy. Yeah, I I think that we need to review a couple of facts for people that may have forgotten some of the things that Jim Leland did in his career. So, won 851 games as manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates. He was their manager for 11 seasons. However, they, they did win three NL East titles. They won a total of eight playoff games. They lost the championship series to Atlanta twice and Cincinnati once. He did, however, these two years of managing Florida, he he managed to win a World Series. He won 11 playoff games, and he won a World Series for Florida. We're not going to discuss Colorado. That was just a mistake. But then he came to Detroit, 
managed here from 2006 through 2013. Eight seasons, finished first in the AL Central three times, second three times, won a total of 25 playoff games, but won numerous series, went to the World Series two times, lost twice. So as part of his career, he won a World Series with Florida, won a ton of games with Detroit. Heck, he won even more games, won 700 games with Detroit, and he won 861 games with Pittsburgh. So the idea that he is not going to, uh, you know, have a, a hat specified makes a lot of sense. He, he won a World Series with the team he was only with for two years, but he really did a, he accomplished a lot of things, you know, from three of the four teams that he managed for. So I think it makes a ton of sense. I don't think we anybody has any reason to feel slighted. And, you know, look, Jim Leland, I mean, Smokes Leland's a legend, man. I mean, he's part of baseball. He's part of everyone. I mean, I'm sure Pittsburgh feels slighted, just like weirdly Florida might feel slighted. So, yeah, great man. Well-deserving. Can't wait to see him go in the hall. About as fun as it gets, you know. We can discuss some of the things that went on when he was here, but worrying about the logo on his head, I think it's kind of a waste of time. Now, I have a question for you, Mark. How about the logo that Justin Verlander is going to wear one day? Because thinking about this situation, I do think that this was the right move by Jim Leland all the way. You know, No doubt about it, right? I think this is a perfect scenario because, again, there's no disrespect to any team, but how about Justin Verlander? Because when I think about this, it makes me think about you know what, what happens to Justin Verlander one day. Is it Tigers or is it Astros? I think that that is not as much as we feel very passionate about the idea that he should be wearing a tiger hat. You know, he's, I think he's won two titles with Houston and, you know, he's not hanging them up anytime soon. So he's there again this year. I'll be very curious where he goes next year, by the way, because I'll be very curious to see how Houston navigates this part of, you know, their their time being so good. It's, you know, they're on their third manager of the era. You got Bregman coming up in free agency, Verlander's last year on this contract, I think. And it's, it will be pretty interesting. I'd say it's still probably the favorite is the Tigers, but I don't think it's a lock. What do you think? I think the Tigers could make it a lock. Sure they could. He could make it a, they could make it a lock by letting them pitch here next year when they probably are going to be pretty good. But, but that's up to Christopher Illich and Scott Harris, I guess. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I don't want to get into this and give my usual barbs about it, but I think it's to be determined. I think, you know, JV can argue if he's the greatest pitcher of the era. I mean, you could argue about Kershaw too, but, you know, Kershaw doesn't even come close to the record that Verlander does in the postseason as a regular season pitcher. I mean, it's pretty tough to top Kershaw. And, you know, it's, that's, that's a discussion for next winter. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, I've had a chance to talk to Mark Tana, and we'll be back with that interview right after the break.
All right, let's welcome Tigers outfielder Mark Canna, who has played more than 900 games in his nine-year MLB career with postseason appearances in 2018, 2019, 2020, 2022, and 2023. The Tigers acquired him in early November in a trade with the Milwaukee Brewers and picked up his club option for 2024. He is expected to play a big role on the field and behind the scenes this season. Mark, it's great to have you on the Days of Roar podcast. Thanks for having me on, Evan. So you finished last season with the Brewers, and the Brewers just traded one of your old teammates, 2021 Cy Young winner Corbin Burns, to the Baltimore Orioles for a couple prospects and a draft pick. Before we jump into things with the Tigers, I'm curious, what do you think about Burns to the Orioles, and are you thankful you play in the American League Central as opposed to the AL East? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Corbin's a great pitcher, and he he's an ace, and he's a bulldog on the mound, and I don't have a great track record against him, so it's I'm glad he didn't get traded to our division, that's for sure. And yeah, it's just it's interesting to see the moves that are happening right now with Milwaukee's an interesting one and then you know you all you know the Orioles are trying to are trying to to go for it a little bit. So it's just kinda interesting, you know, it's uh it, it, you you always trying to get a, um, a, a map of the landscape of how things are shaking up for the for the upcoming season. And I don't know. We'll see. So I think that's a good launching point for our discussion about the Tigers in 2024. Because look, the American League Central only had one team above 500 last season, whereas the AL East had four teams and the AL West had three teams above 500. So when you look at the division as a whole, as it stands right now, considering the offseason additions of the Tigers and you're a guy who's been to the playoffs before, what do you think needs to be the realistic goal for the Tigers in 2024? I mean, I'm on a one-year deal, Evan, so I'm hoping the realistic goal is the World Series. I, I'm not in this for for any consolation prizes or silver linings. I want I want it all. I, I honestly believe that the sky's the limit for this club. You have a good mix of, of young and veteran players and you know, it's only a matter of time before we met, we find out how potent that mix is. And, and you, I'm, I'm really excited about the young talent, and I think that they could carry us. And I hope to play a big role in, in everything, And but you have an extremely young and talented team, and they showed what they could do at the end of last year. And I think there's nothing that, that stands in our way if we can kind of have an identity and, and we can fulfill it. You know, we can, if these guys know how good they are, it's just it's just a matter of putting it all together. The Tigers traded for you at the beginning of the offseason. How did you find out about the trade and what was your initial reaction? It was like, I forget, it was like a Saturday or Sunday morning, kind of like today. And I just woke up and was playing with my kids. <laughs> Not really expecting anything to happen or hear any news. And I think my agent called me a couple times before I picked up the phone. And it was just kind of one of those things like, Hey, you've been traded to the Tigers, and it was just out of the blue, no, no heads up, no indication of what was going on. But it was just like, okay, here we go, new, new chapter, and and uh, you kind of have to just roll with the punches like that as a, as a baseball player. And uh, you know, I met that that weird kind of stage in my career where I had the team option, and like you didn't really know which which direction he was going to go for me this off season. So yeah, it was, it was wild. It was, it was sudden and you have to, you know, you have to be flexible like that. So also too, after trading for you, the Tigers go out and they sign four pitchers in free agency, Kenta Maeda, Jack Flaherty, Andrew Chafin and Shelby Miller. Maeda and Flaherty in the rotation, Chafin and Miller 
coming out of the pen. Have you faced all those guys in your career? And what do you think about the pitching staff as a whole anchored by a nasty left-hander in Tarek Skubal, who, by the way, you took deep one time. <laughs> did I? Indeed you did. Uh, yeah, when you were with uh, the Athletics, you did. Okay. Oh, cool. I must have got him when he was when he was young. And <laughs> 2021, I think. Yeah, okay. Well, I you know, I think you you love to see that. You know, you love to see the team building around pitching depth. I think that's something that an organization can kind of hang their hat on. And we know just from being around the game so much that it's vastly important to have arms and, and plenty of them. And I think to get where we want to go, you you need those pitches. You need to see that. You need to see the the focus on pitching depth. And it's good to see Scott Harris and the rest of the front office kind of putting an emphasis on that savingly. And then one thing too is you were the only external addition to the offense this offseason. I don't know if you know this, but in the past six years, there have been 155 players with at least 2,000 plate appearances. Your 364 on-base percentage ranks 23rd among those 155 players. You've told this story before. But how did you unlock that play discipline and how have you been able to sustain it in an ever-changing game? I don't know, honestly. There was a year in my career a long time ago when I was a young player trying to carve a niche for myself and I wanted to have an identity as a player and and I knew there was something missing and I kind of just made a conscious decision to 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 swing less and to to try and be more selective and not just go up there trying to hit and trying to force the issue and I knew I had a good eye but I think I wasn't giving giving it a chance to work just because I wanted to be aggressive and I wanted to not strike out and I think I was afraid of getting to two strikes and and there's just there's a lot that's gone into it but essentially I've just kind of at that point in my career I think I backed the ball up and, and let the ball travel a little bit more and saw it for a little longer before I made a swing decision and that has proven to help me and that's kind of the the lane I've stayed in and that's me built a career and and it and I think it's made me a productive player you know at least that's what the analytics seem to point at and I noticed that and it, and it it works for me and and that's that's kind of how I've done it my whole career the tigers obviously hope that your approach can be emulated by their young players scott harris has said that you know very boldly what does your approach mean to you? And, and, and like, what is your approach? Can you help me kind of understand what you're going to be talking to guys about and what you can tell tell guys when they say, hey, Mark, what were you seeing there? Or is it specific in-game things with pitchers or is it more than that? I think it's, it's you know, I have my own approach and it works for me and it's it's individual. But I think, I, I do think that everybody has to, to some extent, have their own approach and I, and I can help build on top of that but everybody's kind of a different player like I don't think there everybody has to have a 350 on base you know I think that some guys are going to slug a little bit more and get on base a little bit less some guys are going to do both and and I've been a little bit more towards the on base side and I think that guys have to learn eventually especially when you're a young player you have to learn what kind of works for you and I think that just doing like what I do and trying to do what I do and emulate that might not be the best thing for all guys. But, you know, I think I, I can help. I can help a little bit with guys just being able to trust themselves and and kind of 
make the at-bat their own and play to their own strengths. And that's what I think I'll um, try and get through to the young guys if, if I can. That, that's really good. I thought the Tigers did an excellent job of preparing their players for individual pitchers last season. The game planning, I thought, was off the charts. Implementing the plan while keeping strengths and weaknesses in mind seems to be the next step for some of the hitters. Spencer Torkelson, who hit 31 home runs last season and, and probably has 40 homer potential, talked a lot about that. He learned to eliminate certain pitches while also looking for his pitch, but sometimes he deviated from the optimal plan. Can you help me understand the evolution of that concept? Yeah, I think uh, I think wait, just playing to your strengths, like knowing what do you want to get out of this about, you know, it that's what's the the hardest thing about when you're when you're game planning as a as a group is you go into these hitters meetings and you I think sometimes we try and develop uh, an approach for the whole team to follow. You're like, well, if we're going to try and like get this guy's fastball up, for example, it's just a, a, you know, a basic plan. Well, what if, what if somebody's strength isn't hitting fastballs up, then, then that would be kind of silly for them to do that. So as a, as an individual, you have to be able to take the information, I think, and, and kind of translate it for yourself and go, okay, I here's the, here's the information that we have. How can I use that to benefit me? Because the bottom line is, I I have to go up there. I, I can't do what Spencer Torkelson is going to do or Kerry Carpenter is going to do because that's not my strengths. Like so, so I gotta I gotta kind of dissect and and tailor it to so so that's going to work for me. And and you know, that Javi Baez has to do that for himself. And and so that's the tricky part. How would you feel about being the Tigers leadoff hitter this season? I noticed that's a role that you've handled before based on looking at your splits and you talk about being an on-base guy. And there is maybe a little bit of a stolen base element to your game. Maybe you're sneaky in that way. But how would you feel about maybe being the Tigers leadoff hitter if that opportunity comes to you? I, I've always embraced any role that I'm given. I've never... I always have a hard time doing that. Like managers will even occasionally ask you, how do you feel about doing this? Or how do you feel about doing that? And I, you know, I'm kind of like, well, just throw me in there and let's see how I feel about it. I'm, I'm not really sure how I feel about it, <laughs> but I'll, I'll take on any role. You know, I, I like a challenge. I like trying to prove myself, you know, no matter what stage I, I know I've been in the league a long time and maybe I don't have to do that, but I, I want to, show that I can do anything. And I've always, that's kind of always been in my, my DNA and, and wherever, wherever they put me, I'm going to, I'm going to do my best to, to be the best leadoff hitter, or five hole hitter, or wherever I'm, wherever I am. Okay. So, but do you like leading off though? Because that's something that you have done in the past and I feel like you've done it well. I do like leading off. I think leading off is, is great when you're, when you're going well, it's, it's a lot of, it can be a lot of fun. And when you're, when you're not going well, it can be not very fun at all. Cause I, I've been on both sides of it, but yeah, I think there's an element to leading off that I like just because I like getting to the starting pitcher before he's had a chance to settle into the game a little bit. I think that gives that I've always felt like that gives me some sort of advantage, at least in that first at bat or maybe that second at bat, you get a you get maybe one or two at bats where where the pitcher maybe hasn't settled in yet and he is susceptible to making mistakes or or getting, you know, being a little wild or, you know, you can get a walk or an easy hit that way, I think, early in the game. So 
or it's something where I think my plate discipline kind of helps a lot. As for the rest of the team, what do you think about the youth of the Tigers as a whole? You mentioned Spencer Torkelson, Riley Green, Kerry Carpenter, especially looking at the offense. There's a lot of young hitters there. What do you think about those guys? And can the youth be a good thing for a team like this? Yeah, definitely. I think you have to have youth, especially in today's game. Um, the The level of play is just so high. There's so much high energy, and especially with the rules changes, with all the stolen bases and and the pitch clock and all that stuff. Like, I think you need kind of guys that are that are can just learn new tricks, not old dogs. You know, like guys that can just adapt to that more quickly and. And we got a lot of young, athletic guys, and I think that's how you play in today's game. And, and you need the energy every day, and it's a, it's a very quick kind of high-energy feel to the games now. They're not so slow and, and uh, blong and just, yeah, it has a youthful, <laughs> a youthful aspect to it. And I think you just need a lot of young guys and... I saw that with with Milwaukee last year. When I got to Milwaukee, it was just such a young team and they played with a lot of energy. It was just easy to kind of fall into some games where where you're in it at the end and you just have a chance more often, it seems like, than when you're you're older and you have an older team. It's a little bit, I think with the Mets, what I felt was it was harder to kind of get things going on some days just because the energy is, it's harder to, to dig down and find that when you have an older group. That makes sense. One of the youngest players on the team this year is going to be Colt Keith, a 22-year-old second baseman who just signed a long-term contract extension before playing a single game in his MLB career. What did you think about that? Do you know anything about Colt Keith? And are you looking forward to getting to know him in spring training? I don't know anything about Colt Keith. I'm looking forward to getting to know him and seeing his skill set. Yeah, I can't really have an opinion on it because I, I know nothing about this guy. But good for him, and and I look forward to to getting to know him. And um, you know, I I honestly think kind of the younger the better. And and I'm an old player, uh, an old player. I'm going to be 35 this year, and I think the more youth that we can have on the roster, bringing that energy, that's gonna it can only help. Honestly, as long as everybody has a good attitude and and shows up to the park with you know, expecting to win and, and bringing something to the table, whether that's on the field or off the field or just in, in our mentality, then then that's going to help us. I want to jump away from baseball to wrap up here. What's the origin of Big League Foodie? So for people who don't know, that's your Instagram username. Your bio reads, hitting dingers and crushing food along the way. Your first photo on Instagram is a picture of lamb ribs with dates, almonds, and nectarines. I think you posted that photo back in 2015. Yeah, I scrolled all the way through your Instagram. How long have you been a lover of food, man? I mean, who doesn't love food? Probably since the first time I had some Kraft mac and cheese as a five-year-old. But uh, no, I mean, I went to Cal Berkeley for college. And I think that was, I always say that's kind of where my my tastes kind of changed just because there's so many diverse options in Berkeley and going to places where there's a lot of different, where there's a lot of Asian food or there's a lot of, you know, different types of cuisines that I just wasn't really introduced to in my, in San Jose. Not that San Jose isn't diverse, but I just wasn't going out and looking for Thai food when I, as a high school kid, I think it was a lot more simple. And that was when I my 
kind of palate got a little more refined and got started trying more things. And then it snowballed from there. And then I just one day met someone, friend's wife who, who was doing food blogging on Instagram. And I wasn't on Instagram at the time. And I said, wow, this is a cool use for Instagram to just post what you eat all the time. I, I wasn't really interested in posting like pictures of myself and I didn't see the appeal in that. But I, but sharing what I was eating and, and doing it in front of a, a stage, I knew I would have a stage being in the big leagues and I could have some a following a little bit. And I thought that was a kind of a cool thing I could do that could take me away from baseball, maybe, maybe be an escape and something I could do in my spare time to just get away from the game a little bit. How advanced is your love for food, though? Are you just eating food or are you cooking as well? Are you watching the Food Network on TV all the time? Like, are you like a food 24-7 kind of guy or is this just like a, hey, I really love to eat good food and I love to explore that? I think it's just a passion. I love to eat good food. I love to cook. My wife and I both cook. I think I'm decent, a decent cook. But yeah, I mean, it's everything. I, I We're watching The Bear right now. I'm really into the, the show and... I, it's not like something I do all the time. It's not like an obsession, I would say, but it's something that, you know, I feel comfortable talking about and, and I've been around enough to to kind of know a lot about food scenes and, and different types of food. And it it's just, it's such a fun thing to dive into if you ever get a chance. It's just such a fascinating world to me just because, I don't know, the people that are involved in food kind of reminds me of baseball and how obsessed like baseball players are with their craft. Like food people are obsessed with food in the same way and, and the details and the the attention to detail and just the, the refinement and everything about it, whether it's fine dining or, or food trucks, you know, the people that are doing that are usually really into it and that it's inspiring. And that's incredible. Last thing, and then we'll get you out of here. What are the best MLB cities for food? And are there any specific restaurants you look forward to going to every season? Oh, that's a good one. I like the second one. I mean, the best the best food cities are New York and San Francisco. Seattle is is another favorite of mine. I, I'm really looking forward this year. The way I'll answer that is just Seattle. Like I haven't been to Seattle in a few years, being in the National League the past two years. So I'm looking forward to going back to Seattle and, and trying out some of my my spots out there. There's there's, you know, I don't know, all kinds of great restaurants. Taylor Shellfish Company and I don't know, Matt's in the market has great fish sandwiches and there's sushi spots there that are excellent. And I don't know, I've always felt I, I love the food scene in Seattle, even as maybe one that you don't necessarily think about. But but yeah, other than New York and San Francisco, looking forward to Seattle. And I'm looking forward to Detroit. I hear that Detroit is a sneaky food scene. I, I need to learn more about it because I really don't know that much. Yeah, there's some spots for sure. Like I was just kind of racking my brain as you were talking, like Polish Village Cafe in Hamtramck, like love the pierogies there. Green yeah. Dot Stables, Green Dot Stables in Detroit. It's like bite-sized eats, super good. Mama Maria's house in Detroit, Italian food, off the charts, amazing. Bakersfield in Detroit, upscale kind of tacos, super great. There's a lot of options in Detroit, so you're going to enjoy it. Yeah, y'all have to pick your brain a little bit and have you send me a list or something. Yeah, I'll have to do the same for you. I mean, when we go out to Seattle, I might have to see what you have then because I've never heard of Seattle being a great food place, but I'll have to check it out. But 
All right, man. Hey, look, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for joining. Hopefully we can get you back on the podcast at some point later in the season. Maybe we'll have you back on in November to help recap a special season. Who knows? You know, we'll see what happens. But it was great to have you around this time. All right. Great. Thanks, Evan. Yep. Thanks a ton. Safe travels to spring training. All right. Thanks a lot. See you there. And that was Mark Canna. A lot of really good information. We have a ton more to discuss. We'll be back after the break. Well, Mark Canna, interesting guy, self-made guy. Excited to see what he brings to the table. Kind of brings up an interesting question. I think he said he'd be willing to uh, be a leadoff hitter. It's not my preferred spot in the lineup for him. My question to you is, who should be the Tigers' leadoff hitter? I mean, Canna obviously has the OBP and might be pretty interesting there. Tell me, tell me your thoughts on, we just discussed off the air a few lineup, you know, batting orders based on right-hand pitchers and left-hand pitchers. You know, give me give me your thoughts on who you think might hit lead off. We can do this pretty quickly. This is going to be a, you know, something that's going to probably not get sorted out too quickly. But I'm curious what your thoughts are, at least going into spring training. Yeah, I think right now it's Mark Canna, right? He has to be the guy when you really think about the veteran presence that he brings, the amount of years that he has in the league. And also, like, I brought this up to him and I'm going to bring it up to you. And I want people to understand this. Like, in the past six seasons... There have been 155 players with 2,000 plate appearances. Mark Cannon ranks 23rd with a 364 on base percentage. That's really, really good. That's a guy who gets on base a ton. Look at what happened back in Oakland when Marcus Semyon was the leadoff hitter. After he became a free agent, went to the Rangers. Mark Cannon took over for the 2021 season as a leadoff hitter there in Oakland. And then obviously, you know, only 10 starts in the leadoff spot over the past two seasons with the Mets and the Brewers. I think that tells you a little something, but. But for the start, right, at the very beginning, I think there's a number of candidates, right? Like Riley Green could be a leadoff hitter. Parker Meadows could be a leadoff hitter. You mentioned Matt Veerling could be a leadoff hitter. Obviously, he had got some opportunities in that role last season. I don't know if that's the ideal fit for him, but I do understand the point. But again, like if none of those guys are really ready to take on that role yet, is there anyone that you'd want? Is there anyone else that you want to be setting the tone for your at-bats day in and day out than Mark Canna? Again, I think Mark Canna is a better version of Robbie Grossman. And Robbie Grossman hit leadoff for the Tigers. I think it's an optimal match. But at the same time, I do think there are guys with more talent that could overtake him at some point down the road. I think, I think solely based on the numbers, the idea of Mark Canna hitting leadoff makes a lot of sense. I think in an optimum world, I think A.J. Hench would love it if Parker Meadows hit leadoff. I think where they'll start is Parker Meadows will hit nine and somebody's going to hit leadoff, whether it's Veerling. They may want Canada to hit further down in the lineup, but, you know, Parker Meadows at the top of the order, both from an on-base perspective, a little bit of power, and just a super amount of speed and a stolen base threat gets makes kind of interesting. I can see Canada hitting second behind him with Riley third, Torkelson fourth, Carpenter fifth, I think that's in a perfect world what they'd love to see. But I think that's going to be a work in progress kind of thing. I don't think AJ is going to start off having Parker Meadows at leadoff unless he just burns things up in spring training. You're spot on. And, and I also think 
spring training is going to be kind of interesting this year because I got a feeling that Kirk Maddox and Colt Keith are going to, you know, normally guys do not get an excessive amount of at-bats in spring training anymore. But I, I think Colt Keith and Parker Meadows are going to get a lot of at-bats this spring. I mean, a lot, like 90, like 75 to 90 at-bats this spring. They're going to be in there every day, two and three at-bats. They're going to be playing, going on lots of road trips. They're going to be getting a lot of swings in this spring. He's going to want to make sure they're ready to go. And he's going to use spring training to just get them as much exposure in the batter's box as humanly possible. You got any, got any thought about that? No, I mean, it's just really fun to think about what this lineup could be when you look up and down and you consider the fact that, you know, you just mentioned, I think, like the top six hitters and you didn't even put Colt Keith in that category, right? Like if Colt Keith hits the way that we believe that he can hit, He's going to be right up there in the mix with Torkelson and Kerry Carpenter and Riley Green as well. Again, I, I love the idea of hitting Parker Meadows ninth until he proves otherwise. I think he can work his way into that role. I don't know if Riley Green is really that guy to lead off. I really like Riley in the number two spot. I like Mike Mark Hanna as the, the leadoff hitter for now. Again, there's so many different things that, that the Tigers can do with their lineup and the way in which they want to go about it. And there's going to be a lot that we don't know until much later. And I'm sure we're going to spend all of spring training guessing both what the roster is going to look like and also what the lineup is going to look like. So we'll have more time to dig into it. But I think you're spot on with Parker Meadows hitting ninth, especially out of the gate. And you know what? Look, if the bat is real, if the bat plays and the swing and miss isn't as much of a concern as I think it is right now, he's going to be hitting leadoff. There's no doubt about it. The tools are off the charts. There's no reason why he wouldn't. If the bat is there and there isn't as much swing and miss because the guy knows how to draw a walk. Well, I really think what's interesting about this Tiger team is is the team you see out there in April is not likely to be at least the batting order and the style of play you start seeing in the middle to late May into June. I, I think there's some questions that AJ needs to have answered and to feel confident in and what he's hoping for and what he may protect a few players to start the year may be different. On the other hand, like I said, if guys are burning things up in spring training, you may just put the pedal to the metal and go, hey, let's roll with this and see what we got. So it should be an interesting work in progress from a lineup standpoint. I am happy to say that pretty confident the offense is going to be significantly better than it was last year because God knows it couldn't be worse. So it, it's, I'm excited to see what happens and I think they have a lot, you know, just adding Keith, Meadows, and Canna to the lineup improves the lineup pretty substantially to say the least. So um, you're not putting Nick Maton out there every day and, you know, praying that he makes contact after the first month of the season. If you remember, he was not terrible in April last year. He was worse than terrible after he. He had a lot of people very, very, very excited in spring training. Don't forget about that either. Mark Gorosh included in that one, baby. I He, wow, what a fall from grace. And I think Nick Maton should be very worried about getting taken off the 40, man. So that's a definite possibility. And something to keep your eye on because, you know, the Tigers are not going to make zero moves this spring training. No team does. So, if I'm Nick Maton, I suggest start playing a lot 
a lot better. So what have you heard about Nick Maytime? Anything or no? No, I really haven't heard a whole lot. I know he had a, a procedure of some type done, but he's fine. It was, it, it was, it was really no big deal. I can go back and dig that up, but it was a small medical procedure. He's fine though. Yeah, I think he's in. He's in good shape. We'll see him in spring training. Haven't heard a whole lot about him again. Like nobody's really talking about Nick Maytown. So I'll be very fascinated to see how he shows up to camp. And you know, every time going into spring training, there's guys on that list that you want to talk to. I'm very interested in talking to Nick Maytown and hearing if he's done anything differently or if he's made any adjustments. I'm sure he has because he has to if he wants to keep his job. So we'll yeah, see. Yeah. Well. That. Negative war players, you don't really talk about them too much in the winter time. You're trying to forget them. So you got a chance to do a little homework this week at the Culp Keith press conference. You had a chance maybe to talk to Scott Harris a little bit. Did he shed any insights? You know, Scott's about normally is forthcoming with, you know, tidbits of important information, you know, as a box of dirt. But, you know, tell me if you pride any nuggets of, secret info out of him. All right. He's not that bad, Mark. Come on now. All right. Hey, look, Nick Maytown, I want to make sure I mention it. It was discomfort in his left knee and he had a, some like a small surgical procedure to take care of that. But the Cole Keith press conference, there really wasn't a whole lot to this. I just figured we'd at least mention it. I mean, Scott Harris pretty much said that Cole Keith has not been guaranteed a job on the opening day roster, but he's expected to be the opening day second baseman. I thought this was interesting too. I want to read you this quote. Scott Harris said, quote, I just want to interject one thing, which is a less obvious but important part of this deal. For some players, sometimes, limiting distractions can help you become a better player. I've seen it before in my career, end quote. Referencing Cole Keith getting this deal locked up, not having to you know, play for the RBers to try to make more money. He knows what he's making. The deal is set in stone. He's under team control for nine years. All he has to worry about is going out and playing ball. But it was an interesting point, probably true in some senses, and we'll see ultimately if Cole Keith decides that he made the right decision or not. He probably won't know that for uh, six years or so. So we'll check back in on that six years down the road. Why don't you tell the days of Roar podcast listeners what Mark Gorosh is doing with his fingers right now, why he's saying na 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 When it comes to that kind of stuff, I pay absolutely zero attention. It's just totally, it's like listening to a politician, okay? I I... Here's my answer. If three years from now, Colt Keith has got an 870 OPS, I promise you, the two people that will be absolutely laughing their ass off on this podcast will be Evan Petzold and Mark Gorach as Colt Keith is going, are you kidding me? I'm holding out. I need some more money. This is ridiculous. You need to pay me. Okay? So... Yeah, those three, those, those three club options are kind of a dagger on the deal. Like, again, I've, I've written a lot about this deal, both from, you know, the Tigers' perspective and from Cole Keith's perspective. I talked to his mother, right, to, to kind of get her insight into why he signed the deal and why he wanted to do it. And so I understand from the player's perspective, I also understand why this is a huge win for the Detroit Tigers and a very team-friendly deal. And it looks like a complete steal for the Tigers. I wrote that. I believe that. I agree with that. But I also see why the player you know, sign the contract. I, I get it. I get it. I totally get it. I also cannot wait for in 2027, Colt Keith's mom to be yelling at Scott Harris that her son's underpaid. Oh, stop it. Next topic. All right. So I want to discuss with you something that is seemingly becoming very important to the Detroit Tiger. It's something that has not happened in 
maybe close to 40 years. But what's really been going on in the last year and a half, two years, is that quite a few of their players have substantially improved or had something about how they play the game of baseball. We use the word optimized or improved. So lots of pitchers have changed sometimes their arm angle, added a pitch, you know, been optimized. Hitters have, you know, also improved quite a bit. And you're starting to see pop-up players. Colt Keith, for as well thought of as a hitter as he was coming out of high school, there was a lot of development there. And I think he addressed that if you listen to his interviews in various places all week. I think Justice Bigby is another example of another hitter that's really improved. They have pitchers, you know, Sawyer Gibson Long being an example. Reese Olsen at the major league level last year. Holy smokes. Peter Montero. There's quite a few players, all products of the Tigers player development system. And I want you to discuss that because I think one day we would like to have Ryan Garko on and discuss some of these things. And hopefully maybe we can do that shortly or maybe you'll get a chance to have a few words with them down in Lakeland and we can do that. But why don't we address that? Because with all these, you know, top 100 lists coming out this week, the Tigers fare very, very well. And I think it speaks in, in many ways to players that they've helped improve. Yeah, I'm not surprised by the, the results at all. I want to dig through them a little bit. And MLB Pipeline, Tigers ranked fifth based on prospect points behind only the Orioles, Cubs, Padres, and Brewers, Baseball America, they ranked number five. Last year at this time, they ranked 26th. ESPN, they ranked number three. Last year this time, ranked 21st. Those are significant jumps in multiple different you know, media outlets putting out their top prospects lists and then you know, evaluating all 30 teams. The Tigers have taken a step forward, no doubt. That credit goes to Ryan Garko. That credit goes to Ryan Garko and his department, which has been just phenomenal. And I do think that Al Avila deserves some credit for this. We don't bring his name up on this podcast very often, but I do think it's appropriate to do it, you know, especially in this case, right? Like he hired AJ Hinch, who hired Chris Fetter. He hired Ryan Garko, who hired Gabe Rebus and, and, and other guys on that player development staff. They've done a great job of getting the most out of their players, even top end talent. Go look at a guy like Jackson Job, who when he came out of high school, his fastball was terrible. It was flat. It was running back into barrels. It, it was a no good fastball and they've done a really good job of helping him take steps forward. They moved him to the third base side of the rubber, and it's made all the difference. His fastball was lights out in the fall league because of that. And I think the slider is going to be better this upcoming season because of that as well. Moving over to the third base side helped. They made that same suggestion for Reese Olsen. Moved him over to the third base side. Everything got a lot better. Command dialed in. Fastball got better. How about that? I think it's like those kind of things that, that those guys are doing in player development, they cannot go unnoticed. They deserve credit, and they don't like to take the credit. I understand. They like to give it back to the players because ultimately it is the players who have to implement everything. But they have done such a great job providing all their resources. Like The Tigers are a place to be. If you're a player that's young and you want to get better and you want to improve, they're showing it not only at the big league level, helping out some guys like Spencer Torkelson, huge step forward, Michael Lorenzen, what he was able to do, awesome. Tyler Holton, look at that. The slider's nasty. It's real. You know He, he can command all of his pitches. They're doing things at the big league level. They're also doing them in the minor leagues as well. That's a recipe for long-term success. It seems like, I don't know, man. I mean, it just, it seems like all the ingredients are right there and and something really good is cooking. I think we have to 
start acknowledging is, is that, you know, the, the Avila administration, especially once they weren't around to sabotage themselves anymore, left the Tigers at least with a decent amount of raw talent to develop. You know, you got Wilmer Flores, undrafted free agent in the 2020 draft. Bo Keith, fifth rounder. Kerry Carpenter. Meet guys, Bro Brisky. Guys that were not all guys that were not first rounders. And guys that are starting to play a prominent part. I mean, you have, you know, this year you're going to see, you know, Tyler Madison, a reliever maybe. You're going to see, you might see Wilmer Flores a relief. You might see Kyder Montero in relief. What they did with Reese Olsen last year, I mean, the line, Sawyer Gibson Long, holy smokes. I mean, they took basically an org pitcher and turned him into a really interesting potential, you know, back to the rotation starter. So these are all things that good player development systems and player development orgs do. Teams like the Dodgers, teams like Tampa. Those are the kind of teams that optimize players from within their system. They take shots at players. And I think if you look at who they drafted last year, rather than taking Wyatt Langford, they take Max Clark. They take Kevin McGonigal. These are the types of things that both the Padres and Tampa have been known to do. And that's kind of who's running scouting now for the Tigers. And they feel confident in turning those people over to their player development people, you know, run by Ryan Gark. So I'm excited to see this is a big year for them. I'm excited to see how these guys do. That's what excites me the most is I think that there's a significant connect between scouting and player development that there wasn't in the past. And I do think that, you know, Ryan Garko and his team have done an amazing job taking pieces from the Avila era and turning them into something, right? Turning them into something, in some cases, something great, right? And they've done a great, great job of that. But now there's this new level of connection between scouting and player development, which I think makes the Tigers player development department even more potent because it's like, hey, look, here are the players we're looking for. This is what we want to build our identity around. Scott Harris had kind of mentioned that the day that he was hired, talking about the types of players that he's looking for in this organization. And if you can give that to scouting and say, find me those players, scouting then gives those players to player development. Player development, if that's what they want, they're going to be able to develop it. So I think that that's a very encouraging piece of this that we can't forget. And I think that's why I think, you know, you mentioned the Tigers being in the same breath as some of those other teams that are, you know, highly regarded for what they do on the PD side. I think that's where they're headed. I, I really believe it. Well, I'm, a, I'm excited to see what happens with some of these. You know, they have players that need to polish. I think Jace Young needs more polishing, you know, for sure. Excited to see what he does this year. Want to see what McGonagall does. You know, and I want to see a big B again carry over his 2023 into 2024. It's a hard thing to do, but pretty exciting bat, pretty unusual profile of where he hits the baseball. Want to see if he can maintain that level of consistency and maybe expand upon it. But I also think, you know, based on what we've talked about in the past few weeks, when you talk about expanding it into signing players in the international, you know, what we call IFAs in the international draft, those players think besides just getting money that the player development's really good, it makes you more of a a target destination for higher end kids because they think, you know, when you're 17 years old, yeah, you want money, 16 years old, but you want to think that you're going to go somewhere that's going to help you get better. So the idea that they can develop players is a great thing to have on their resume to try to help them acquire those kind of talents. 
So an interesting thing to pay attention to going forward. I want to discuss a player that we've discussed a little bit over the course of the winter, personal favorite of Evan Petzl, but was not on any of the prospect lists at a hell of a year in AAA last year, at a hell of a year in 2022 before they acquired him in trade. Kind of has a unique hitting profile, but because of his defensive kind of, you know, deficiencies, wasn't really on any of these prospect lists. So why don't you talk to us about Justin Henry Malloy and what your thoughts are about this? Yeah, just to put it bluntly, he can't play third base and he's not very good in the outfield. So the Tigers are kind of stuck in a weird situation and he probably strikes out too much to be a DH. Let's just be honest. That's my opinion here. I think the guy does do damage. He hits for power, but there is some in-zone swing and miss issues. He walks a lot, which is great. And that's awesome. The OBP is really, really good, but it kind of does seem like it's either he's he's drawn a walk, he's striking out, or he's going to give you some power. And that can be a good thing, but at the same time, you know, I don't really see him as like this true all-around consistent hitter yet. Maybe he can be that guy. But again, like the strikeouts are just alarming to me. Anyway, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think it probably, I mean, we'll see what Justin Henry Malloy becomes, but what if Justin Henry Malloy doesn't become anything? And that's when I kind of say, okay, let's look at the first two trades that Scott Harris has made, right? I mean, Scott Harris traded away Joe Jimenez, who got extended by the Brave for Justin Henry Malloy. And I think a, a lot of the success of that trade obviously rides on Malloy, obviously Jake Higginbotham was also acquired in that deal, but but Malloy was the centerpiece, right? Higginbotham is org depth. Malloy is a guy that can maybe be a dude. And then you also look at the other trade, which is Gregory Soto to the Phillies for Matt Vierling, Nick Maton, and Donnie Sands. Donnie Sands already off the 40 man. Nick Maton, he might be on his way off the 40 man, you know, here in spring training. And Matt Vierling, does he look like an everyday player in the big leagues? Not so much. He looks like a good, maybe fourth outfielder backup infielder kind of guy that can be your last night on the roster. So if Malloy doesn't hit, are we talking about the first two trades that Scott Harris has made as trouble trades, maybe not so good outcomes? We'll see about that. But I do think a lot of it rides on Malloy. And we'll see. I mean, I'm, I like him because I think that he, again, he, he walks, he does damage. The strikeouts are a problem, but he has a ton of at-bats in AAA. I don't really think he needs any more. What else is he going to learn? But also... I don't really get the sense that the Tigers are super high on him. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of still waiting and seeing a little bit on that one. We got to get to spring training first and maybe ask some more questions. I think the Tigers are high enough on him to give him some at-bats and some opportunities, but he's going to have to hit his way into making people go, yeah, that's a good deal. Uh, it's not like Cole Keith where it's, you know, they got two groundskeepers out there smoothing the dirt at second base going, Mr. Keith, we're so happy to have you. By the way, is there, tell me what your sandwich order is for after the games. You know, it's, it's, and by the way, you know, don't worry about packing because we'll have your suitcase all packed up for you to go on the road trip. It's, it, it got a ride for you. You know, we'll, we'll, you know, pick you up from the airport. You know, it's, yeah, no, Malloy's got to earn it. He's still on my opening yeah. day roster prediction. He's right. not, and it's not going to change. I think he still is on the opening day roster. But again, one, like, where does he play? And two, is the bag going to play enough to say, okay, we want to get you in that DH rotation and we want to maybe take at-bats away from other guys because that's what it comes down to. If he's going to work his way into the mix, he's going to be taking at-bats away from Mark Canna and from Kerry Carpenter and, and from guys like that that are going to need opportunities in the DH role. So that's what it ultimately comes down to for Malloy. Here, here's a nice way of saying it. One of two things is going to have to happen for Justin Henry Malloy to get a shot here, especially early, either 
somebody's going to have to get hurt early. And it would be a person that obviously where they felt they could spot them in, in an outfield spot and give them some DH at bats. Or two, somebody needs to get hurt. So, and I think a lot of times one going Or he spends sp- a lot of time on the bench. I don't really think they want Jay Hen to spend time on the bench. I think they, with options, fun. he's going to get at bats at Toledo. And I mean, even if he's hitting 340 with a 50 OBP at Toledo, I, I just don't think the Tigers are going to make room for him based just on that. I think someone's going to have to either be bad or get hurt. He's not going to hit his way into the lineup. It, it's, I just find it. Difficult to think that's the case. Unless, now I'll give you the one caveat. He's got like 23 home runs in 60 games at Toledo. Yeah, maybe they'll start thinking about that. But, you know, if he's, if he's you know, hit 320 with a 450 OBP and, you know, 12 homers, I, you know, that's nice. But I don't think they're moving people. Well, Mark, he's going to be one of the top storylines of spring training, no doubt, for, for these reasons exactly. I think, you, you know, I don't think he's going to be as popular a discussion as you make it out to be. And I, I want to remind everybody, in spring training, when it's the fifth inning and you're hitting off guys from double A, don't pay much attention to that. I, You know, it's nice when you're doing good stuff, but from a context standpoint, I think you're at, you know, on Days of Roar, you and I are both, you know, kind of given... It's nice, but we're kind of giving it the side eye, right? Because training performance means nothing. I'm talking about trying to read between the lines a little bit as we get into camp and you start to see how things look and you see how things shake out and you start to get a feel for things when spring comes around. That's all I'm going to say. And so I think, you know, sooner than later, we probably should have a decent idea of kind of where Malloy stands in all this. And I think right now it's still up in the air, in my opinion, from at least what I know that that's where I'm at on it. All right. Answer this question for me before we get out of here. Who's ahead in the pecking order, Akil Badu or Justin Henry Malloy? Justin Henry Malloy. Okay. I'd like to think that's probably a neck and neck race walking into the locker room in in two weeks. So pretty pretty close. You know, I, I think bench bench players, AJ Hinch, love people that bring intangibles. I think we forget that Akil Badu has some power. God knows he's a really good pinch runner late in the game, right? And, uh, you know, he, he can draw a walk almost as well as Justin Henry Malloy. So I'll be interested to see how that shakes out. I can't wait for spring training to start. I'm happy all the snow melted. And do I need to take you to CVS and buy you some suntan lotion? Because I know you're going to be, it's like I used to take Jordan Gorosh to, to the drugstore. I used to take all my nieces and nephews to the drugstore before they went to camp and make sure they had all the stuff they need. So I need to know if I need to take you to CVS to make sure you have all the stuff you need. I already went shopping, Mark. Like. I told you it was a busy week. I already went shopping. I, I got maybe a few more things to pick up, but I'm all set on the sunscreen. I'm going to enjoy the weather, man. All right. I'm sure they have plenty of sunscreen down in Lakeland, Florida and, and in St. Pete, which is not a real long drive from, from Lakeland. All right. We're going to get out of here. Real Baseball is going to start here pretty soon. I want to remind everybody to rate, share, and subscribe. Leave a few comments for us, whether it's in Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. You can always find us in bed every week, almost every day in the free press and for sure in every article that Evan Petzl writes at freep.com. 
like to thank our executive producer, Kirk Crawford and Anjanette Delgado and the free press editor, Nicole Avery Nichols, and especially the man that we always make work extra hard every week, Robin Chan. I like to thank you, Robin. You always make things sound so much better when I listen back to it than I thought we were when we were doing it. So love to my grandson, the spectacular Braden uh, Michael Gorash. Shout out to Savannah Petzold. And until next week, peace.